We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Okay, good afternoon, Adam. Hey, good afternoon, Richard. So, Ayman al-Zawahiri is dead. Again. Yet again. So, go on, Adam. Where are we going to start? What are you going to tell me about? In fact, let's, let's talk about that. How, how do you want to start? Do you want to go through a biography of Ayman al-Zawahiri? What's on your mind to talk about? Do you want to focus on... Uh, the the actual event of his death and the, what that means, what it doesn't mean. How do you want to start? Well, I mean, a short biography for those who don't know. Ayman al, Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri is the former emir of al-Qaeda, and he was also the former co-emir of an Egyptian radical sect called Egyptian Islamic Jihad, who was behind many uh, terrorist attacks in Egypt, including the assassination of Anwar Sadat, and the attempted assassination of Hosni Mubarak, who took over as president after Sadat's death. Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri was arrested and jailed for, uh, I think, two years. He was brutally tortured, and he became an informant for the Egyptian SSI, giving up a very dear friend of his named Isim al-Kamadi, who actually was given the weapons to the uh, Egyptian EIJ radicals who were in the army, and they killed Sadat with those weapons. Zawahari then fled to Pakistan during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and he worked at the Red Crescent Hospital, where he eventually met um, a young Saudi named Osama bin Laden. And well, well, back up, back up, back up there. Mm. I don't think that's a well-known fact about Zawahari, that he became an informant for the Egyptian police. And and I didn't know it. I'm not sure if you knew it before. There was a particular book you read, wasn't there, of, of a fellow who knew Zarahiri, who disclosed that, that he had to, he was let out of jail and took the police round to the houses of his colleagues. Can you just elaborate on that point? Firstly, is that a well-known fact? No, um, it isn't. Did it, you it, know it, about it before you read this one particular book? No, um, I had not. Uh, the I want to say was that uh, he's a lawyer and he's a, a, he was actually a friend to Al-Zahari named Montesir El-Zayat. I think that was his name. And the name of the book is Roads to Al Qaeda. I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm, that name escapes me. But no, uh, yeah, it was like Roads to Al Qaeda or something like that. And it was, it was a very one of the most important books I've ever read because it's the only like in-depth biography of this very shrewd and mysterious individual, Dr. Ayman Al Zawahiri. And it comes from a very intimate background of a person who who really was friends with him. But after the Sadat, a little bit about the story, Sadat is assassinated and the uh, Egyptian government, led by the State Security Investigation Services, the SSI, uh, made mass arrests. 
and arrested hundreds of people, even even anyone that was suspected of being um, affiliated with these groups and families. Uh, they were all jailed. And there's a famous video. I, there was still on YouTube and it's Associated Press where you'll see a young Zwahiri speaking to the media throng outside the uh, Torah prisons in the courtroom. Uh, not Torah prison, but outside the, inside the courtroom. There's prisons inside the courtroom. And he's yelling and screaming about why we're here and they're torturing us. And uh, there's a couple of videos uh, showing even um, Khalidia Slambouli, who was one of the, who was a lieutenant in the uh, Egyptian army, who was the man who pulled the trigger uh, on Sadat. Zwahiri, uh, during when he was tortured, and he was tortured with electrodes, dogs uh, biting his legs and arms, put the cigarettes out in his face. I did a brutal torture method, by the way, just terrible. Um, that he even states in his book, Knights on the Prophet's Banner, uh, that that actually shaped him to be more anti-state against secular uh, secular nationalism. And so he, be he became much more militant because of it. But one thing that pushed him over the edge was uh, when they were interrogating him, because they wanted Isa al-Kamari, because they arrested everybody else. Muhammad ibn Abd al-Faraj, who is the, the, the actual leader of uh, Egyptian Islam Jihad, and Khalid Islambouli. And they arrested, uh, I think, uh, it's like 10 others. That, but the big the big fish was Isam al-Kamani. And they knew Zwahiri was very good friends with him. And so Zwahari, after numerous nights of torture, uh, decided to work with the SSI. And one thing he did was he led them to a mosque that Isam al-Kamari was praying to and that he was going to meet Zwahiri there. Instead, he was arrested. And this drove, and this is coming from Zwahiri's own testament, this drove Zwahiri to become somebody who would try in all his might to overthrow the Egyptian government. And so he did. Because after that, Zwahiri spent a couple of months at Torah prison, and then he was released because they found out that he was not directly involved with the assassination of Sadat. He had influence, but he was not directly. Okay, so, okay. I'm going to pause you again there, Adam. Sure, yeah. What was the fate of others in his position, his colleagues in there? Because one of the points that Sybil Edmonds made when she talked about seeing FBI files on Sarahiri and had presented this image of him at some point coming to really consciously work for this Gladio B NATO operation. So one of the points you made is if you do something like that, in Egypt, if you're involved with the assassination of a president, even if you're the equivalent of the T-boy, you don't come out of jail, right? That you're done, right? And Zahri walks out. So do you think that, one, that's consistent with the sentence given to other people in his position, or two, that him becoming an informant facilitated his release? And then, of course, if that's true, the question is, well, when did he stop being an informant? If we know he started, when did he stop? Or... Could we speculate that that relationship continued in some form from there on in, that even if he was ideologically committed to jihad and to turning Egypt into an Islamic state, uh, to this revolution, that he also had to play both sides of that game and give up information at times to keep himself safe? What, what do you think of all that? That's a, that's, that's a very good question, by the way. He uh, All right. After the arrest, the mass arrest and the trials, uh, there, I think it was 11 people that were executed for the uh, assassination of Bamrah Sadat, including two key figures, Khalid Islambouli and Muhammad ibn Abd al-Faraj. And 
when they were executed afterwards, uh, Zwahiri, as well as many dozens of others, uh, were released from prison in 1984. Wh when this happened, it wasn't just Al Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri that was released, but another Egyptian radical who was also in jail and who's a very influential figure later on. And most people listening to this uh, broadcast will know who I'm talking about. And that is the blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman. Okay, so he was involved in the assassination of Sadat. Um, he was he was influential in it, but he wasn't okay. personally direct. They, they didn't have it much in the way of evidence to support this. Same thing, same in the same fashion as Wahiri. So when when he was when they were detained and arrested, it was Wahiri who was tortured, but not Rahman. Rahman was released as well. He was released in 1983, 84, but Zwahiri was released in 84. And Zwahiri was immediately excommunicated from Egypt, same in the same fashion as Rahman. And one thing that the Egyptian government later on, and this is noted in the book by Montesir al-Zayat, is that um, the Egyptian government made a tough decision, is that they did want to see these people in jail for a longer period of time. Is it because we hear he was an informant? I think it was a key part, because they caught Isam al-Kamari, who they really wanted. And Isam al-Kamari, basically, later on, he escaped prison. Zwahiri, he then went to Pakistan. And Rahman actually was under house arrest after that. And he was act and then he applied for a U.S. visa. And just incidentally enough, if, you know, if we're going to entertain, Zwahiri was released because he was a informant, which I wouldn't disagree, because this comes back later on to haunt him in the, um, the return to absentee case in I want to say it's uh, some country in a, near the Balkans or something like that. I forgot the name of the country. Um, but it, what there what was, was a, the context of that? What was the case? Um, there was a, a mass, uh, there was a murder of an official that he was actually involved with. There was a arrest warrant by the courts of his arrest that lasted for as long as he was alive. It was involving the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and a number of other people, including Dr. Ayman al-Swahiri. After that, there was a number of Egyptian radicals, including Abu Ubaidah al-Benshiri, Abu Hafsa al-Masri, Saeed Imam al-Sharif. Now, a lot of people will say, you know, I don't know these names and stuff like that. But these are the people who would later on become the most influential and most important figures in the creation of Al-Qaeda. And all these people basically were released on the hopes from the Mubarak government and the SSI that they would be killed in the war of Afghanistan, the Soviet, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. But it backfired. Yes, a lot of people did die, but a lot of those people I just named all survived. And what they did was, was that when they were released from these jails, they were tortured by the SSI and they were made to inform on their friends became much more militant than before. So in other words, instead of going with the fringe aspect of saying they created these people, no, they created the vacuum for the mentality of these people. They didn't really have to torture these people. They arrested everyone that was involved, but what they wanted was more because we're dealing with a secular government that hates Islamists. And then you ferment that belief by torturing these people to thinking, hey, you know what? We don't really need to torture them, but by torturing them and making them martyrs, you're just fueling the fire of that belief.
and you're gaining new convicts because they will just go to these poor neighborhoods where they're being subjugated by the state and say, you know, we're, we're going to try to make things different. And there's hand over fist, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and a group like Gamma Islamia. Oh, they would go to universities, Cairo University, um, Al-Azhar University, prestigious universities. And they would go to these uh, very liberal uh, students that were fighting against corruption in the state. So in other words, you had the ingredients. Well, you know, all you need now is to put the ingredients together to make that bomb. And the Egyptian Islamic Jihad certainly did that. Gamma Islamia itself was a much more underground group. But going back to Zahiri, he he leaves. Uh, well, he's forced out of, of, of Egypt. He goes to Pakistan and he meets up with Osama bin Laden at the uh, Red Crescent Hospital. And he's very enamored by him. And he sees the potential, massive potential um, of bin Laden and his wealth. And bin Laden, who's fighting against the Soviets, Zahiri basically um, wanted to use that financial influence to engage a jihad, not in Afghanistan, but in Egypt. And so the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and the members that were released from these prisons went to Pakistan, worked with bin Laden, and took over the Afghan Services Bureau, which was created by Azam under bin Laden's money, which was built just for the fight against the invading communists in Afghanistan. Nothing more. It wasn't a terrorist building or organization. And later on, yes, they were, it, it had some uh, elements and influences later on, but initially it wasn't created like that. And what they did was, was Zahiri changed bin Laden's mind uh, theologically into a much more radical position. And Zahiri, along with the other Egyptians I mentioned, then took over the Maktab al Kim at the Afghan Services Bureau and basically created uh, rumors, spread nasty rumors, unproven rumors about Abdullah Azam because Azam was considered the emir of the Maktab al Kidamat. Well, he stepped down. And when the Soviets left Afghanistan in 1989, Azam was killed in a car bomb. And one of the suspects was Dr. Ayman al Swahiri. Zwahiri actually spoke at his funeral. And they took over the Afghan Services Bureau, Zahiri and bin Laden. Meanwhile, that Afghan Services Bureau was getting hundreds of millions of dollars from the Pakistan ISI, who was getting it from the CIA through Operation Cyclone. So it wasn't a direct payment, mind you, but the CIA knew where the money was going. Now, did it trickle down to other Afghan warlords and Arab fundamentalists? It sure did, but you'll you can never track who it went to. But it certainly went to a lot of them. And it gave them the weapons and the means to grow bigger. And when the Maktab al-Kidamat was dissolved, Zwahiri was in Pakistan, bin Laden went, to the, to went back home to Saudi Arabia. And um, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, uh, he offered to fight the uh, Ba'athist army with the, uh, the al-Masada camp, the Arabs that were with bin Laden. And they were shocked that he would even ask him because they yeah, he couldn't pose a threat. And instead, they invited the United States. And this was the precipitating factor for bin Laden and Zwahiri to engage not just a war against the communists, which has now taken a backseat, but now to the United States, which is now the enemy, because they were seen as the enemy because of their affiliation with Israel. And at the same time, 
So here he didn't forget the fact that he's also fighting a war to him, which was much more important in Egypt against the Mubarak government. And so when bin Laden was uh, forcibly expelled out of Saudi Arabia, he went to Sudan and invited Dr. Ahmed Zahiri with them. And then they created the group called Al-Qaeda. Okay, so is Zahiri in any way linked to the violence in Egypt during the 90s, like the Luxor massacre in 1994? Well, that's Gamma Islamia. Not, not connected to Zahiri? Right? Not connected to Zahiri. Okay. So here he actually made a statement about that, not to mention, I, we did, I did a, um, a podcast about that here. And um, as we hear, he said later on that, that that incident was facilitated by the Israeli Mossad, but it was uh, eight members of the Gamma Islamia group. Okay, and, well, I, I think, Adam, tell me if you think I'm right. I think there's an interesting book yet to be written about the Egyptian infiltration, the Egyptian security services infiltration of these Islamic groups, because I don't know if you know anything about that, but I don't know anything about that. And I don't think there's any kind of cultural barrier to prevent them from doing it. They certainly have the resources to do it. And when we did our series, The Road to 9-11, we looked at Algeria, right, for the 90s. So these uh, radicalized Arabs come back from the war in Afghanistan and cause political turmoil, in particularly in Algeria and, and in Egypt. And in Algeria, these accusations emerged during the civil war there that the government is running some of the more extreme, more disgustingly violent Islamic groups. You have a government minister, we played a clip off, um, talking about that. And you can, presenting various evidence for it, like massacres taking place near uh, government soldiers and not near uh, where the Islamists were uh, and so on, as a way of the, the secular government demonizing the Islamists in the country. And I don't know that the Egyptian government en masse would want their their tourist industry damaged by allowing the Islamists to run amok. Uh, but it's certainly a way that there could be no better way of demonizing them. I, I, I don't know, you know if that's true, but we run into um, interesting incidents like with Imad Salem and the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, where Imad Salem, this Egyptian army officer, infiltrates this uh, terrorist cell in New York and afterwards, uh, Hosni Mubarak makes comments about, we had a man in that cell, but Imam al-Salem always insisted, well, he wasn't a man in the cell. He wasn't working for the Egyptian government doing that. It always seems very unlikely. You know what I mean? I'm just, do, do, you, do you concur with me there? That there's like, there's a lot we don't know about that relationship. I, I would absolutely agree with you. I think the, the State Security Investigation Service, which is the Egyptian SSI, which was created back in uh, 1950, 51 or something like that, their training methods came from the Russian uh, KGB, actually. It's well-known, well-written about it, about the formation of the SSI. And one thing that the Russians taught them was the art of uh, infiltration. Not many people touch on the subject, and I can understand why. But to infiltrate these groups, and I think we discussed this before, it wouldn't be very hard, especially for the Arab intelligence services can infiltrate these groups and pass off as Salafists. The SSI is one of the oldest. They're, they're no longer, uh, they're liquidated uh, back in 2010 or 11. But they are one of the oldest and most shrewd intelligence services in the world at the time. And there was an old saying by the United States CIA, if you wanted uh, uh, torture, you go to Jordan. But if you wanted to kill somebody, you go to Egypt. And one thing that the, like I said, the Egyptian KG, uh, the Russian KGB taught them was about the art of infiltration into subversive groups. 
And so when you bring up the, the idea or the notion that the SSI had indeed infiltrated uh, groups like Amos Levy and Egypt and Islamic Jihad, yes, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. I think they were informants at some level, but at the highest levels, it, it becomes much harder. And the reason why is because Gamma Islamia was an open group. Egyptian Islamic Jihad was a very closed group. And when that group was created, they were called Al-Jihad. And it was basically 10 to like 12 universities. They all knew each other from university. And these, were, these weren't like Al-Qaeda people, dumb and illiterate. These were very educated people. That's what separated them from a lot of e like radical fundamentalist groups. These are very educated men. They are much harder shell to crack. But when, when they become a little bit bigger and the cell gets a little bit bigger, I would absolutely believe that there, there's at least, if it's not informants, it's people who are with the group who give legitimate information so that they if there's an arrest of that person, that they could overlook it whether for whatever crime it may be, it may not even be terrorist related. This is what happens to the mafia, La Cosa Nostra here in New York, where, you know, you have like certain members of like the Bonanno or the Gambino crime family that won't become uh, an official informant, but they'll become information uh, gatherers or they'll, they'll give information for, you know, a get out of jail free pass or something like that. They'll have to get something in return. And I think that's the case with these Egyptian radical fundamentalist groups. Now, do we know for sure that, you know, like say Ayman al-Swahiri was working for the SSI? Uh, right now, that's a tough call because like I said, you know, there was um, an investigation into Zahiri and I, I, I named it wrong. I said, return from Mazatia. It's called Returnees from Albania. And that was a massive criminal trial uh, in the Egyptian military court. Just to give you a little background, because I, I, I said this wrong. The trial was one of the principal sources of the Egyptian groups like Gamma Islamia and Egyptian Islamic Jihad. The documents regarding that trial involved a high number of these people in, in Egyptian Islamic Jihad. And they were, they were involved with a lot of like bombings and assassination attempts in Egypt in the 1990s. And, you know, a lot of people were killed. And a lot of people don't talk about this. It's huge because basically a lot of these people that survived the bombings, like from Gamma Islamia and Egypt's Islamic Jihad, later on were charged for these things, but they weren't brought to trial. So it makes you wonder why they weren't. And that's why I said to you, you know, I, I, I don't dismiss it because I do think at some, at some, like the lower levels, you had some agreement between the SSI and the, these fundamentalists. Okay, well, there's a certain economic logic to it, isn't there? Probably the mafia, and people say this about the Northern Irish situation too, the IRA, the people who are going to do well in those organizations, and by do well, I mean stay alive and out of jail for a long time, are going to be the people who cooperate, right? Because you imagine what a, like, that's like a superpower as compared to anyone that doesn't. If you have law enforcement to some degree on your side. So the economic logic suggests that there are a lot of cooperators to some degree, within these groups? Well, Egypt especially is more glaring because they were under a massive class warfare system that goes back to the early 1800s. I mean, corruption in the country was rampant. This is why it gave fuel to the fire, so to speak, for these Egyptian radical groups to begin with. And it started with the Muslim Brotherhood, but they were considered more liberal-minded later on. They reformed many times because of the pressure under the Nasser government um, who arrested the hierarchy there 
and uh, later on, the Mubarak government. Sadat actually released these people because he saw the the backlash and the uh, the the pressure from the lower classes to release these people, and he wanted to appease them, and he wanted to bring back more type of financial foreign influence in the country, Israel, the United States, Russia. And what this did was create more foreign people to work in the country. Same thing as you brought up with Algeria through the French, where the Islamists saw this as a problem because they saw the state outsourcing their employment to non-citizens. And so you had a civil war. Well, that's what happened in Egypt as well. And so after the Muslim Brotherhood was seen as some organization that won't pressure the government to change its ways, these smaller, much more radical fundamentalist groups were created to do just that. And if it needed to bomb a governor's house or uh, assassinate a mayor of a certain town, they'll do that. And these groups basically operated on precepts of not just Wahhabism, but also on political fear, terrorism, political terrorism. And so that's what gave the uh, terminology of political Islam, or you know that which is just basically another word for Salafism, uh, Wahhabism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, political Islam is basically a small little Wahhabi groups that basically will use terrorism as a means to enforce or to force the government to change their position. And so the, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and the Gamma Islamia, even though they have differences in, in uh, ideologies, but they'll work together to uh, defeat a common enemy, and that is the Mubarak government. And they tried, they sure tried, but they failed in that regard. And it was their own terrorism that failed in, in Egypt. So in 2000, 2001, Dr. Ayman al-Zahiri decided to merge the Egyptian uh, Islamic Jihad with Al-Qaeda. And so they did. That was seen in 1998 when they declared the second fatwa against the United States. One of the co-signers was Dr. Ayman al-Zahiri and um, Rafai Taha, who's the leading member of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. And they saw the potential for bin Laden and the money that he had, and they wanted to engage two wars. And it's something that I mentioned because this is one of the precepts of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad was that there was a near enemy and far enemy approach. And the near enemy was to overthrow secular Arab governments to create an Islamic caliphate to, and to fight the far enemy, which is the United States and Israel. But the near enemy approach was going to take too long. And Swahiri basically pressured bin Laden to change his group into, instead of fighting the communists in Afghanistan, to fight the United States and Israel in the West, uh, the far enemy. But they knew they couldn't beat them militarily. So they needed to precipitate a terrorist act to bring them into another quagmire, just like they did with the Russians. Okay, so Sarahiri is implicated in the embassy bombings and the coal bombings mm -hmm. throughout the 90. Anything else with regard to the United States? By default, he's, he's involved with the Millennium Plot. He's involved with the East Africa bombings and the September 11, 2001 attacks. There's actually a big arrest warrant for his arrest by the uh, uh, Southern District of New York, along with bin Laden. And also the, 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 the warrant from the return, uh, returnees from Albania as well. So you had a number of warrants regarding al-Zwahiri. It would be also important to mention that 
according to Sibel Edmonds, that he was considered a, a gladio operative or yeah. an informant. And I forgot the name of the country. I, this is something I, I forgot the name of the country he was in. Um, I, I, it just escapes me. But, you know, there's. He was some... in various European countries. Yeah, he didn't have Barrett, a Swiss right. passport yeah. for a while. He, he might have had a Danish passport or had asylum there, yeah. like a, a false Danish passport. And he was in Chechnya. He got picked up by the Russians at some point. Right, that's right. That's right. That's it. That's right. The Russians claimed they couldn't, they, they didn't figure out who he is because they suspected he was a big fish, but they yeah. couldn't translate his laptop within right. six months, which is kind of absurd. I don't think anyone really believes that. Sibel Edmonds claims she saw documents within the FBI that indicated, or didn't indicate, they directly said, Ayman al-Zahiri was having meetings with NATO at this time, and he was just a fully conscious operative. Now, I don't know what to do with that claim, right? Because it, it just doesn't really seem to fit. Like, the, there's a limit to how deceptive I think people can be, and I don't think Ayman al-Zahiri could put on a lifelong acting job of pretending to be this Islamic radical while secretly working for the New World Order. It just seems a bit... I'm not saying Sibel believed she was working for the New World Order, right, but some kind of US empire imperialist plan. You know, I don't I don't know where to go with that. But the idea of, like, the wider Islamic Jihad being a gladio-type operation, so just people know what we're talking about there, where in Italy during the, the Cold War right-wing operatives were engaging in acts of terrorism to pin them on the political left. But I don't think you had, in that sense, like that would be the equivalent of if you had some sort of false communist actor in Italy going around pretending to be a, a communist for years while secretly being a right-wing operative and living his whole life as a communist, uh, setting up terrorist events. And you don't really see that, right? You don't really see these long-term acting operations. Right. Why I'm a bit cynical of them, right? Is all it would take is one video from Ayman al-Sahiri to go, oh, yeah, here's the documents I have from NATO or something to right, right. bring the whole thing kind of crashing down. You know, so I just, I don't know what to say about Sibel's thing. I, I don't doubt that there's a relationship and I don't doubt that Ayman al-Sahiri has more connections to the security state than you know. But to say he's a full-blown operative, that's that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, I'm going to have to draw the line there, right? Because we really don't know. And now you just re reinvigorated my memory. Yeah, he was actually detained in 1996 in Chechnya uh, because you, you mentioned the country Chechnya. It's, it's, actually, it's exactly right. But he was on, I think he was going under a different name. He was using a pseudonym. Yeah, he had um, various and, names. Yeah, yeah, and I forgot the name of the name. But um, he was actually detained. And he actually stood in jail for six months um, or like six, five, six months or something mm. like that. But then he yeah. was released and he was released. Um, because they couldn't decipher, I think either the laptop or a letter he had or something like that. And yeah, it's laptop. like it's like absurd to think they sent it to it. Moscow and they couldn't right, decipher right. it. That's but right. at the same time, they believed right. he was a big fish. Yes, but they they didn't have any Arab speakers. That's in right. Russia. So yeah, I think I, I I might have said something about this in a uh, article I wrote about Ibn Khattab and a, a Chechen Islamic leader, where a letter was sent by Ibn Khattab uh, to. Um, uh, Muslim uh, Muslim uh, Islamists in uh, in the Balkans, where they don't release Ayman al Suhiri uh, to engage in terrorist operations or kill you know police officers wherever you find them. Now, whether that had any influence or not, I, I don't know. But he was released like in a half a year or something like that. And I I'm, and I'm wondering like they know who he is because this is coming at the heels of um, you know him leaving the Sudan. And, you know, he goes back to Afghanistan with bin Laden. 
But he actually travels to Eastern Europe at this time. Now, what is he doing there? I don't know. Why didn't he just leave the Sudan with bin Laden straight to Afghanistan? That was the case. Because when the Taliban received bin Laden, they only received bin Laden and some of the Egyptian groups, but not Zahiri, because he wasn't there at the airport. Kabul International. And at this time, uh, yes, he was in the he was in the Balkans, he was in Czechia, and he gets arrested. But why was he released, knowing full well who he is? Hmm. And you damn well know that the Russians basically contacted the Egyptians saying, Hey, you know, we got the email of you know the Egyptian Slavjad here. I'm sure that was the conversation. And what, six months later he leaves? Yeah, Sabel's reckoning is that um they, they found it more interesting to follow him and see what he was up to, and, and by extension, see what NATO was up to. Well, isn't that isn't that interesting? Because that's what they did with Khalid Al-Midar and the Wafa Hasbi, didn't they? <laughs> well, I thought the CIA did. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah, so I think there's something in that, right? I, I really find it hard to go all the way with Sabelle's yep. claims, but I think there's there's something in that that's correct about why the Russians released him. Sure. I, 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 would, I would be right in the middle of that. I, I agree with you. It's not as, it's not as black and white, and it never, it never usually is. But um, somewhere in the middle is is actually the truth. I think he was an asset, not directly, maybe, but he was a, a a valuable asset at that because you know he has contacts within the most uh, dangerous uh, Islamic uh, Islamist international group in the world. Not just one, but two of them. So yeah, it would it would behoove the intelligence services, domestic and foreign, to keep that contact alive to see who else he's contacted and what he's doing and plotting. But at the same time, this guy is a, basically a danger to everybody else. Okay, so 9-11 happens, mm. and Ayman al-Zawahiri does not become the face of 9-11, which I suppose he could have done, really, as opposed to bin Laden. He could, or he could have been co-equal in that. But he, he doesn't, and he remains a more obscure figure. That not Maybe there's a time where a lot of people would have sort of known the name but that's certainly that time comes to an end and i think probably with the announcement of his recent assassination a lot of people would have gone who the f's that you know <laughs> they were i don't think he's a, i remember i think we did an interview on a few years ago i interviewed on a few years ago and i looked him up on youtube and there hadn't been like one video made in seven years about i'm now sorry he really fell away from the public attention whilst and that one video was a, a news report saying, oh, yeah, the intelligence services, they've got a lot of other concerns now. They're excited about ISIS, but they're still out to get Ayman. They're still they're still looking mm. for him. And at various times uh, over the years, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, it was claimed he had died. Um, in in 2006, there were two attempts to get him. Uh, the, I think they believe one was successful initially. Um, according to The Guardian, in the drone attack then, they killed 76 children and 29 adults, but not... I'm an Al-Zahiri, so, yeah, well, what can you say about that? At some point, also in that post-9-11 world then, the United States and Al-Qaeda, or the United States and Islamic radicals, make an amends and rejoin forces, as they had been joined up until the point of 9-11, of to fight in Libya and Syria. So, whatever you want to comment on there, Adam, about what I'm an Al-Zahiri is up to through that period... Or about the the reproach mob between the U.S. and Al Qaeda, which was like there for all to see uh, Operation Timber Sycamore in in Syria, hmm. and how we get up to today. Whatever, whatever, what, take it wherever you want to take it, Adam. Well, immediately after 9/11, Zahiri, Bin Laden, and Suleiman Abu Ghaith, who was a uh, 
a member of the Al-Qaeda group and in charge of media and uh, Shura Council. They flee to the mountainous regions of Afghanistan, uh, bordering Pakistan. And they release the first video message involving all three. And it's the first time in the world that all three would be seen talking. And this is in regards to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. Afterwards, bin Laden holds a number of different interviews through Al Jazeera uh, and through the Al-Qaeda media arm Asaha. But Zwahiri only holds maybe two interviews during this time with the U.S. invasion of, of Afghanistan and then later Iraq. And Zwahiri, for the first time in his, in his life, did an interview in 2004 immediately after the invasion of Iraq. And he did it alone. It was the first time he ever did one alone. And basically, he talked about uh, U.S. imperialism and the influence of Israel and how they are at war with not just the Crusaders and the, the U.S. military in Afghanistan and Iraq, but also with Israel, they called the Yehud. And this was a series of interviews that he will hold much later. So Bin Laden, where he would basically do very little later on, Zwahiri started taking more in charge of Al-Qaeda by doing a lot more videos than Bin Laden did later on. And throughout the mid-2000s, Bin Laden would basically be relegated to audio interviews. And whether you want to say it's actually Bin Laden or not, I mean, that's, you know, teetering on fringe conspiracy. I happen to think that, yeah, they assassinated him in Pakistan. Uh, because he serves no purpose at this point. I think there are reasons to think that was his actual death day, because there's a lot of people who could have come out and denied it, right, if not. Right, sure. Like That's... his wives and... Yeah, exactly. You know, this is, uh, just to touch on that, there was a very important video that was found in Jalalabad in, pa in, uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, I'm sorry, Pakistan. And uh, basically, they, they this tape saw Bin Laden, Dr. Ayman Zwahiri, and Khalid al-Harbi, who's an uh, Arab an Arab fundamentalist, basically sitting down and talking about the 9-11 attacks. And um, I know that there are people in the fringe elements of the 9-11 truth movement that say, well, the tape is fake. And I, I usually come back with the argument, well, if, if it's fake, why didn't bin Laden, Ayman al-Zwahiri, or Khalid al-Harbi basically later say, hey, that's not us in the video. And it was a well-known video, too. Yeah, now, the, the thing about that, caught a, a lot of people at the time and in fairness I, I probably would have gone along with that but I remember sure, sure. okay I think that people were a lot younger in doing this work in a sense like I remember James Corbett published a retraction about it because he'd indicated sure. that so what it is this is like a video compression method that's used where Bin Laden it looks like Bin Laden but it kind of doesn't look like Bin Laden right. you right. know I definitely fell for that at the time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit it sure. uh, or, or I think I was maybe like I remember the Sun newspaper in the UK publishing a headline like you, it was called You Gloating Bastard or something, right? right about right. that video. And I was like, why is no one questioning the fact that it doesn't even look like him? And it's because it kind of does. I think David Icke, I remember calling him like Fatty Bin Laden or something. Right, exactly. Down the, the Kabul cream cake shop because it kind of did look like that, but apparently it's, it's a compression method that was used. But yes, nobody stopped to ask the obvious question okay, even if you think Bin Laden's kept in a cia underground base somewhere and he's only brought out for terrorist events like there's all these other identifiable people in the video so what are they all fake did the cia hire actors that look like not only like bin laden but also like alzari you know and all right. the rest of them and then you learn to say okay that was kind of silly <laughs> you know to think that it was fake 
and I think similar kind of logic probably applies to the what was it, 2011 assassination of yeah. Bin Laden. Yeah. No, it, look, it's understandable why people would be hesitant because we've been lied to by the government so many times. But it, it, it's much more complex than that. Well, with Ayman al Zwahiri, when he was doing all these interviews, nobody mentioned to claim, oh, that's a fake Zwahiri. Because, like you said before, everybody knew who Bin Laden was, but nobody knew who Dr. Ayman al Zwahiri was. And so because of that, we really didn't pay much attention to him. But nobody actually, because he did a lot of interviews. He did so many with Asahab Media. And I have a lot of those videos, basically. You've uploaded some this week, haven't you, to your yeah, Odyssey I did. channel? I, I did indeed, because I, I want people to see them. Um, and to see that they are legitimate and that they are real. And some of them were taken in more recent years, weren't they? Like over the past. I want to say 2000. Yeah, 2014, 15, right around then. Just give us a gist. What, what's he saying in 2014, 15? What's the, the gist of what he's saying? Uh, he's talking about Syria at this point and also the corruption of the Egyptian government, as usual. But also, to more importantly, the, the bigger uh, message was the uh, coexistence of the Islamists themselves. What he wanted to do was consolidate power. There was a big problem in Syria, you mentioned Syria, that the Al-Qaeda affiliate groups had a big falling out with the Islamic State. Hmm. And um, basically the Islamic State, basically on their own, disassociated in 2014 with Dr. al-Zahiri and the uh, Al-Qaeda, because Al-Qaeda was against the murder of Shia Muslims, hmm. because they wanted an Islamic Union to fight against Bashar al-Assad. And Islamic State considers Shia even more of an enemy than Bashar al-Assad or the Jew or the Crusader. And so they were killing, uh, slaughtering Shia Muslims. And Zwahiri wrote a letter to the Islamic State condemning them for it, and they disassociated. And so these videos that came out later, like in 2014 and 15, basically were talking about that and the coexistence of Islamic unity. But at the same time, Richard, Al-Qaeda was losing its, its momentum, its essence, because at this hmm. time, bin Laden is dead. Uh, much of the hierarchy in the military committee is dead or in prison. And the only ranking members that were alive at the time were Dr. Ahmed Zwahiri and Mohammed al-Masri. And there wasn't much in the way of like really reputable names at that point. Um, Hamza bin Laden, who was supposed to take over Al-Qaeda, is reportedly dead because we haven't heard from him in so long. And when bin Laden was killed, it was supposed to be Hamza bin Laden, but he never took over. Ayman al-Zawiri became the emir of Al-Qaeda. But like I said, with bin Laden dead, with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in Guantanamo, with um, uh, Abu Hafs al-Masri, Mohammed Atef, military commander dead, uh, they basically uh, had no one left, really, to coordinate large-scale terrorist attacks in the region. Zwahiri tried to change that. And once in a while, he would release a video, too, uh, on the eve of the uh, September 11th attacks. And just last year, he, he released a video on September 11, 2021, talking about the attacks, trying to inflame the Islamic community. But you could see right away it wasn't gaining much traction, even with viral media. Right, and he was justifying the attacks. He was yeah, celebrating yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. And what was his goal in Syria? Was it the overthrow of Bashar al-Assad? Yeah, it was the overthrow of Bashar al-Assad. And basically because Bashar al-Assad is an ally to Egypt. And, you know, that was another reason why he hated uh, Bashar al-Assad. Now, did you ever see, I mean, I'll see you reflect on the irony of making a video praising the September 11th attacks and also being allied with the United States effectively in their 
goals in Syria. No, I don't think so. And I think it's funny that you bring this up because, yes, it, you know, but, but at the same time, you also had the CIA funding the Islamists in Syria against the uh, Bashar al-Assad with an operation called Timber Sycamore that you raised earlier before. Mm. Um, but no, I think the irony didn't hit him at the same time. But then again, he did say something to this effect with the uh, CIA in Afghanistan, where he basically said, yes, we'll take their money, but we'll, we, we, we still consider them the enemy. Right, because it's just one way of looking at it is that Al-Qaeda has similar goals to, or Islamic Republic has similar goals to the US empire through the Afghan period of the 80s into the 90s, and then into the 90s, the breakaway stand countries and Yugoslavia. And then there's this falling out through the bombings in East Africa and the coal and 9-11, and, and then there's a rapprochement in, in Libya and Syria. Or another thing, you know, if you're Ayman al-Zahiri, you can reflect on the irony of that, but you could also reflect on the irony of like, well, you know, even 9-11 itself was really a gift to the US empire, not a gift to the US as a country, as a, to its people at all, but a gift to the US empire. So I wonder if he ever wakes up at three in the morning and has that thought of like, damn it, everything I've done in my life has enhanced the US empire. <laughs> I've been working for them all along and I didn't even know it. Or maybe I did, but probably not. But either way. Yeah, oh, this is a great point you raise. And by the way, Ali Soufan wrote the Black Banners and he raised this issue saying that Al-Qaeda basically underestimated the power of the American military. And basically they were going by previous engagements with the military, East Africa bombings, for example, where they only shot a couple of missiles into Afghanistan and Sudan and basically didn't do anything when the USS Cole was bombed. So when they took the fight to the United States, so to speak, to, to entice them to engage in a war in Afghanistan, then they realized, oh, wow, you know, the response is great. But I'm, I'm always torn about this because how could they not realize that the American military was this great institution that they could crush Al-Qaeda at the same time? But bin Laden basically said this in an interview with Taysir Alawani of Al Jazeera. And Scott Horton brings and mentions this periodically, and he's one of the very few journalists to do so, where he basically said that bin Laden was a genius in the fact that he knew he couldn't defeat the U.S. military. So he wanted to draw them, entice them into a long-gauge battle in Afghanistan against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And he thought that he could do that with the East Africa bombings. So with the Clinton administration, they didn't engage in that war. And he praised bin, uh, Clinton later on. His son later, another son of his, basically was interviewed and said that bin Laden actually respected Clinton for doing that. But Bush, Bush was easy. And when the 9-11 attacks happened, they not just went all in in Afghanistan, but they gave bin Laden an extra gift. They went into Iraq. And what this did was basically twofold. Yes, it drew him to a the longest war in U.S. history, and also trillions of dollars went to the military-industrial complex instead of the people. And that's something that bin Laden said in Taysir Alawani's interview in 2002 with Al Jazeera. It's an interesting and far-sighted strategy. Scott Horton never really bought the idea that there was some deeper motive behind the Afghan war, right? That it was like, right. I don't know I don't know his exact thoughts on it, but I think he was pretty cynical that it was all about an oil pipeline or it was all about the, the minerals that are supposedly in Afghanistan or gas pipelines or whatever's lying in the Caspian Sea. I think, yeah, he was always cynical of that and, and just thought it was just bureaucratic idiocy of the First Order mm -hmm. driving the thing all the way. And I suppose if you look at it now, you'd have to say, well, that's that's the paradigm that played out. 
yes, it's a paradigm to play out. And also, too, it gave a vacuum to these other Islamist groups that would later come out of these conflicts. And one such group was the Islamic State with the liquidation of the military and the law enforcement in Iraq under Iraqi provisional law number one and number two, which was ordered by L. Paul Bremer, of all people, a State Department Bush lackey. He basically gave a vacuum for these Baptists who were secularist Arabs to basically join with the Sunni Islamist groups and say, you see what the United States is doing. That's who we're fighting against. And the formation of the Islamic State and Iraq was basically under the influence of the Baptist police and military. And that's who trained the initial uh, starting members of the Islamic State in Levant. That's what made up it initially. And there's a long theory about this that was posited by uh, the name escapes me the book. It was a great book about ISIS and uh, basically said that ISIS was helped, not created by the state security services of Iraq or uh, the United States, but that they facilitated it. In other words, they created that environment for them. And sure, yeah. basically what they and, and, you know, if you want to say that they knew what they were doing, I wouldn't disagree with that uh, because you have like long-term foreign policy advisors that do think five, 10 years down the line. But I, I definitely don't agree that they didn't know. I think they exactly knew what they were creating. And so with that in mind, you know, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who is nothing more than a pimp and a murderer, now suddenly becomes, with the help of bin Laden and Dr. Ayman al-Zuhiri, by giving him, you know, a couple of thousand dollars to help build these training camps in Iraq, all of a sudden... This group becomes a very large group that takes over Mosul, the capital, which shocked even ISIS at the time. They couldn't believe it. And then after that, you know, they basically got disseminated. Al you know, Al-Zakarbi's eliminated. And then Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi becomes the leader. And they have to start all over again. But just like with Zarqawi, he finds another enticing vacuum, this time in Syria. And he basically goes to Syria, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he becomes this small little diffraction group, and they become a huge uh, multinational organization with the help of millions of dollars that were coming from the Timber Sycamore Program. Whether it was directly or indirectly, it doesn't matter. But they became very influential. They took over the oil fields, and who bought the oil from them? The United States. And you see the videos. You can see videos of them, you know, and they're proud to display these videos. Brand new Toyota trucks, brand new. Where'd that come from? Well, it couldn't come from Syria. The country's under, you know, fire. But it came from the United States, who's buying the oil from these radical Islamist groups, while at the same time saving face and trying to bomb their outposts. But through the back door, through the CIA, through Jordan and Israel, they're basically funding these groups with Saudi money. Saudi weapons. And, you know, that kept the war going. But, you know, Baghdadi is actually killed. And, uh, you know, Islamic State's basically destroyed thanks to the Russians and thanks to the Iranians and the Quds Force. And Zawahiri, yeah, he got, like I said, yeah, the Islamic State broke from Zawahiri and he lost influence. And that was the beginning of the end. For, for me, 2015, 2016 was the beginning of the end 
of Dr. Hamas Rieri because he had no influence left in the region. He lost Syria, he lost Iraq, he lost bin Laden, and basically trying to save face by doing these videos at a very old age. And I think the writing was on the wall. You know, it always puzzled me to think that he lived as long as he did without yeah, ever being like born. 70, 71 years old. Yeah. One of the most wanted men in the world behind bin Laden. It was Dr. Amazriri. It was a $25 million reward. And, you know, I, I brought this up to DJ Thermo Detonator uh, the other day. You know, they caught Ramzi Yusuf in Pakistan, the bomber of 93. They caught Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged mastermind of 9-11 in Pakistan. Abu Zubaydah, you know, a, a, an alleged military commander in Pakistan. Ramzi bin al-Sheib in Pakistan. But they couldn't catch Dr. Ayman al-Swahiri. Strange, isn't it? Yeah, I always wondered why, like, why couldn't they do it? I mean, Ramzi Yusuf did set his hotel room on fire, which helped. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, but, but, but oh, yeah, you're quite right about, about the others, like more obscure figures as well, like the... Yeah, it is a strange thing that they because they caught them all quite quickly, right? Right, and then twenty years later, it takes for sorry. Yeah, strange. right. More, what I'm saying is, they're more mobile figures. They're younger. That's where here he was older, and he he stood. He never left Afghanistan, Pakistan. So I, I it be like it really. I don't want to go that route and say that they allowed him to live as long as they did, but I can't argue against it. You understand? So in other words. Do they realize that he was in this neighborhood where he was killed recently in Kabul city, living in the same streets as military dignitaries and government officials? He's living right there. Unbelievably, bin Laden did the same. Bin Laden lived in a complex that was known to the Pakistan ISI. Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban, was living a few, like two or three miles away from the U.S. military. And he died of old age. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's just it really I can understand why the conspiracies surrounding these people say, oh, you see, they allow these people to live, because it really questioned like they could find anybody in the world with the technology they have, but they couldn't find these people who are the most wanted people in the world. Yeah, it really defies belief for me. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And who knows? Who knows what's happened in the past few days and right. whether he was alive. I, I sort of suspect when these people die, they die as described. Otherwise, they're leaving themselves a, a big headache in terms of I'm now series pops up and makes another video next week. That's going to be rather embarrassing. No, you know what? And like, you know, I told um, these two young kids podcast for New American Century, and they're great for anybody listening. Go subscribe to them. They're fantastic. I, I brought to them the other day because they, they asked me, is, is he really dead? Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri, and I told him, look, it, whether he's dead or not is not important because we'll never really know. You know, uh, allegedly, Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri was killed by two Hellfire missiles um, while he was standing on Saudi's balcony. Now, the house is, is empty, and the Afghan government, led by the Taliban, are trying to cover up the fact that he actually was there because there's nobody there now. I say, look at the bigger picture. Whether he's dead or not is irrelevant. But what, what, what is the bigger picture here? Al-Qaeda is now dead. With Zwahiri dead, with bin Laden dead, with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in prison, with Ramzi bin al-Sheib in prison, with Mustafa al-Hasnawi and Amr al-Baluchi and Wali bin Atash and, you know, Abu Hafsa al-Masri, the Egyptians that were behind Zwahiri, that were from the Egypt's Islamic that helped create Al-Qaeda, they're all dead. 
And so what I'm saying is the United States can no longer use Al-Qaeda as this international terrorist threat any longer. Now, do they exist? Yes, Al-Qaeda does exist. They exist in North Africa. They exist on the fringe elements of the Arabian Peninsula. But as an international force, they no longer exist, nor do they, do they have that same international influence that was existing under bin Laden and Dr. Amin al-Zuhiri. The, the death of al-Zuhiri, to me, is much more influential, much more important than the death of bin Laden. Bin Laden was a much more revered figure, but Zuhiri was a much more dangerous figure. He was much more uh, important in terms of the essence of al-Qaeda, the essence of terrorism, than bin Laden was. Bin Laden basically was just the face, the financier. He wasn't a, a real, like, Wahhabi theologian in the same fashion as Zuhiri was. Zuhiri was much more influential in Egypt, too. And now with his death, this basically will cause the Islamist sects of, like, Egyptian Islamic Jihad and Al-Qaeda to basically take a few steps back in regression. And that's what I'm afraid to see is that what will happen is the Pentagon and the State Department will find a new enemy now. And it just so happens that what are the Republicans pushing? Well, they're pushing a return back to the Cold War, China and Iran. Well, that and was I an interesting thing, Adam. I mean, the first news piece I saw it was Sky News Australia on the death of Sahiri. Mm. They had a, a chap on from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a neoconservative think tank, linking al-Qaeda to Iran and saying, well, now Zarahiri's gone, these these links are going to tighten up again with Iran. That, well, that, now, now, that wasn't the case back in the day. Of course, such groups are claiming it was back at the time of 9-11, that there was this, initially Iraq-Al-Qaeda connection, then switched to Iran-Al-Qaeda connection. Uh, but now, like, Al-Qaeda is being funded by Iran, so it's another another reason to, you know, really consider harsher sanctions and, and maybe a war there. So there's a, a weaponization, again, of, of Al-Qaeda and of People, I think, seeing what they can get out of Al Zahiri's death. Yes. Now, th this connection with Iran and Al Qaeda. What, when you mentioned this before the podcast, um, I, I, I immediately thought of the uh, the story of Saad bin Laden. Saad bin Laden was one of the, the youngest sons of bin Laden, and he was detained in Iran. So immediately, a little backstory: after the nine eleven attacks, bin Laden. Uh, split al-Qaeda and his family in two. One sect went into the mountainous regions called the White Mountains near Pakistan, the Afghan-Pakistan uh, border, and the other half went to Iran, knowing full well that they would be under house arrest, but they wouldn't kill them. So Iran basically detained um, a number of, uh, one, one, one of bin Laden's wives and one of his sons, Saad bin Laden. And Iran Iranians in 2002, uh, according to a Times article, uh, you know, the Time magazine, because um, I, I, I read the, I, I read it online, and they basically said that the Iranian officials went to meet with U.S. officials in Switzerland, and tried to broker a deal, and it was a one-sided deal. Iran would hand over Saad bin Laden because they didn't want anything in return because of the 9/11 attacks. So they wanted to hand over. They said we have one of his wives and his son, and those U.S. officials said no, we don't want them. Strange, isn't it? Mm, that mm. you would not want them. Now, the reason for this, what I'm trying to get at here, is that 
In the same fashion, why bin Laden was allowed to escape in Pakistan in 2002 with the CIA chasing him in Operation Jawbreaker when they could have killed him, was that he managed to live for another 10 years. Now, the person who in charge of that program, Gary Bernstein, basically wrote a book called Jawbreaker, and he says this, that the State Department didn't want to kill bin Laden because he was much more valuable alive. And also, at the same time, they were sending military to Iraq. Now, why were they doing that? Well, they had to connect al-Qaeda to Iraq. And with bin Laden alive, they can always do that. Well, in the same fashion that they consider Iran an enemy, and they want to consider them a terrorist-funding country, which is not. Anybody who's a layman knows that Iran is a Shia country, not a Sunni Islamist Wahhabi country. But with al-Qaeda there, under house arrest, they can always say, ah, you see, they're harboring al-Qaeda affiliates. Well, mm. what did, and that was 2002. Fast forward to 2019, Muhammad al-Masri was allegedly, there's no evidence of this, but he was allegedly killed by Israeli and U.S. officials, a drone strike. Iran later came out the next day and said that that story is untrue. Well, what do you think is happening here? Well, they want to say that Iran is harboring terrorists. And they've been doing this all the way back to 2002 with Saad bin Laden. And so this is, this is going to be a theme in the future. Now, like I said, anybody who's a layman knows that Iran and al-Qaeda were at war. And that basically is not coming from my view. That's coming from bin Laden's own memoirs, which were captured when he was killed in Abbottabad. He had, he had written a diary. And he was talking about Iran in, this, in the light that he didn't trust the Iranians with his family there. They thought mm. they, were, they were torturing them. But he had no choice to split them because he didn't want them killed all in one area or that they were captured in one area. So because the United States were at, were at odds with Iran, he felt that his family would be safe from being by, by captured by the United States. That's the only reason why they went there. There's no affiliation, friendly affiliation between al-Qaeda and Iran. But the State Department will tell you that, yeah, that's exactly the case. Israel will basically say the same thing. But they're lying. There is no direct affiliation with Iran. In the same light, there was no direct affiliation with Iraq. They lied about that too. But that didn't stop them from invading the country. Yeah, which is really interesting to see that this narrative is still going on 20 years later, connecting yes, Al-Qaeda to, right. to any country but Saudi Arabia, really. <laughs> yeah, it, it defies belief. I mean, uh, you know, you've got to have people like, you know, intelligence officials, former anyway, that came out later and saying that there is no connection. You know, why, why are they doing this? Uh, well, of course, you know, the, the influence is coming from, you know, Iran, Saudi, I mean, Israel, Saudi Arabia, because they have powerful lobbies. And with powerful lobbies comes money. And money will make people say and do, you know, very nefarious things. You know, look, the past two years, you know, people like Tucker Carlson and uh, Sean Hannity what are they doing? Well, they're, they're telling your viewers over at OAN and Fox and Newsmax, hey, you know, we need to invade Iran and we need to invade China. Yeah. Yeah, the left, the Democrats are, are pushing for war with Russia. Yeah, they? Ukraine, Ukraine, right, Russia. But, um, you know, if it got, you know, I, I, you know, with the House and Senate up for grabs this November, if it turns red, don't be surprised if you see the change from Ukraine to China or Iran. Or a mixture of both. 
and and that you'll become less interested with Ukraine. Okay, Adam, any final thoughts on Al-Zahiri? No, not really. I th- we covered a lot of ground there. We and, did. You know, uh, which I'm glad to do. I'm very happy we did this, Richard, hmm. uh, because he is a very important figure. And, I, you know, even when the story came out that he was killed, I expected to see the story last a longer time than it did, but it didn't. And basically, after like two days, it was not even trending anymore. Yeah, you know, I think the real story is that no one cared about the story. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And just how, what a long time ago 9-11 was now. Not not even in terms of years, but in terms of world events. I even think if this had happened in 2019, it would have been a bigger story. But in the post-COVID world, you know, th- those 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 days were over. Yeah. Isn't that your warning to me? You know, you, a couple of years ago, you said that COVID has now taken over 9-11. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah you were right. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Adam. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about another seminal figure of the mm. the terrorist 9-11 era Alex Jones Alex <laughs> Jones, we're going to have a chat about what's going on there and the implications of it I think for I can't wait for that widely. Yeah, enjoy that too, <laughs> I, I don't know how much of the trial I'll get through, I'm not promising I'll, I'll watch the whole thing, right, but oh, good. parts of it are very entertaining indeed Good luck, it's like watching the sun <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Adam Thank you Richard <laughs>